you want to pick a market that calls to you and a problem that you you care about and be prepared to commit five years, 10 years to that problem space because if it is a big enough area and, and you have a good enough team around you, you can find a, a compelling opportunity. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Zero to Exit. This is Ankur and Lima. In today's show, we're excited to have one of the big names in the venture business. Arif Ilali is a partner at Bain Capital Ventures and a proven technology veteran with 20 years of experience as a serial entrepreneur and an early stage investor. Most recently, he served as a partner at Sequoia Capital for seven years. Prior to venture, he founded two software companies which had had successful exit. As the president and CEO of e-discovery company Clearwell, he was the member of the founding team and scaled the company to 100 million in ARR and an eventual 400 million plus exit by Symantec. Previously, he was the founder and CEO of data center automation company called Center Run, which was acquired by Sun Microsystems. Hey, Arif, welcome to the show. Hi, Nicole. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's so good to have you. Thank you for taking time. We've got a packed uh, agenda today, so I'm going to get uh, right into the meat of the discussion. You know, it looks like you came out swinging right out of the college, started Center Run, had two consecutive startups. Uh, typically, the ty- type of entrepreneurs that we have on the podcast typically have hiatus in like big and small companies before they start your own company. Uh, were you always a product builder? I got to do my own thing type of person? I didn't really grow up as an entrepreneur starting my own lemonade stand or my family's from Pakistan, my parents immigrated to England. I grew up in North London and it was just happenstance. After college, I got a job in New York that led to graduate school at, at Harvard. And while I was there, I decided that I really wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I actually went to speak to one of my professors who and told him that, you know, my plan is to, to move to California and start a, a technology company. His advice was, well, let's be honest, you have no industry experience. You've barely been to California. You don't know anyone there. This is probably not going to work out well. So why don't you join a medium-sized company that can leverage your general business skills, kind of find your feet in the industry, and with a track record of whatever, two, four, five years, then with that, start a company. And I I see in hindsight that was good advice. I, I initially took that advice. And joined a, an internet company called Atlo Networks that became excited. Oh, one of the early internet portals that competed with Yahoo. This was before the days of, of Google, but I hated it. And within a year, I, I was dis, disenchanted and I, the, the company was not very well run. I see with hindsight that having, I, I, I executed badly on good advice. At the time, I looked at it and what I should have done was I should have said, I've chosen poorly. Let me learn the lessons and choose again. But instead, my conclusion was, this is a waste of time. Why am I working with someone else anyway? I'm just going to do what I wanted to do in the first place, quit and start a company. And so that's, that's what I did. You know, risk aversion is like so ingrained in the DNA. Did the thought that, well, this may not all work out. I'm going to be in my late 20s, not have made any money. Did that not cross your mind? To be honest, I, I, I'm optimistic. I assumed it would be that what I would do would work. And I just felt that if it doesn't work, I can always get a job. But if I don't try, if I don't try and do something, then that's something that I would regret. And 
you know, I didn't have a very high burn rate, frankly. I mean, a small place in San Francisco and our Honda Civic or whatever. And so I felt like, you know, I didn't need a lot of money to live. You know, map was in the light bulb's fine and an internet connection. And I, I see lots of risk aversion in people. But I feel that you know, if you're fortunate enough to have energy and an education and the imagination, the desire, the drive to want to try something, that there's not a huge downside to it. Worst case, you become, you get valuable experience. You become an expert in an area that you're interested in. And there'll always be employment opportunities. At least that's how I looked at it at the time. I think Central Run was right around the time when I was at Sun Microsystem as well. I was in the JavaSoft team. I took the safe path and chose a big company that, that would pay me well. Were there any learnings from your first experience that have still stayed true and passed the test of time? Or has the landscape completely changed whereby nothing really applies anymore? Well, landscape has completely changed, just to give you a sense of how different it is. Those days were the, the opposite or the mirror image of today. And as an example of that, I would say that raising money was really hard. Selling product or convincing, getting users, really hard. No one was, was willing to believe. But recruiting was really easy. And so there was phenomenal talent available because very few people were hired. So that, that just to give you a sense of how different it was from today. But having said that, there are a lot of things from starting Center Run with my wonderful co-founders, Mike and Basil, that I still draw upon today. And I'd say the number one thing is just that, that feeling of what it is like to try and be a founder. And it is just very, very scary. It's very uncertain. Nothing is clear. And, and it's not just a question of having empathy, which I do. Huge amount of empathy and respect for entrepreneurs and for people who, who try to create something from nothing. And, but beyond that, it's, it's from that understanding, trying to help them in ways to help them get to that next milestone, whatever that milestone is. And I think it really helps with, with that. So with that, we'll jump to your clear well journey to our knowledge. There was no market for e-discovery when you started, when you became the CEO for ClearWell. How did the idea come about? There was a market for e-discovery services, not as much for software. And so what we did was hmm. we did what people were doing as a service and, and automated it and improved it through software. But when we started, we weren't trying to do e-discovery at all. And I think a lot of businesses start this way. We just had a feeling and an insight that people were using email for lots of things. But basically, every communication was now going through a messaging system. So everything that used to be, in the very old days, a memo or a hallway conversation would, would now be captured in text, be stored, be searchable. And our feeling was there has to be something you can do with that that information that could be helpful to people. And looking back, I say, well, you know, Relate IQ, the company that Salesforce acquired, was maybe the closest to what we had in mind, helping people make better business decisions. But it was too early. It was pre-social. It was pre-cloud. It was hard to get the email. People weren't keen on you analyzing it when you did get it. The reaction people had is the same reaction people would have today if I said, let me analyze your text messages. Today, most people would say, yeah, I don't care about my email, whatever, especially corporate email, but, you, but, but you're not touching my texts or my WhatsApp messages. So those are private. And people had that attitude towards it, that email at those days. It was pre-iPhone. And so it was just very hard. So we spent a couple of years iterating through different applications, looking for different angles on this problem until we stumbled into e-discovery and found a utility company in Baltimore, Constellation Energy, 
that was willing to pay us $420,000 for our, for our product. And that really got our attention. And then we started digging into, well, why are they buying it? What are they doing with it exactly? And that led us down the path to e-discovery and then becoming an e-discovery software company. And once we did that, then we hit product market fit. And it's just this tremendous feeling where you are doing all the same things you were doing before, but there's this kind of massive tailwind behind you. And sales just took off. Are there any interesting stories, Arif, about the finding the product market fit? When did you know you, you had the product market fit? Was it customer traction? I've been in a company where I saw that and it's really hard to quantify it. Product market fit is kind of thing where if you listen to some investor, you think that you either have it or you don't have it. Once you have it, you have it for good and you're done. And life, unfortunately, is not that simple. It's the kind of thing that you discover over time. And then once you have it, you have to constantly rediscover it by expanding on it. And, and so for us, that initial discovery came from working with a handful of essentially design partners who were paying us, but it was this handful of companies like Constellation Energy and, and a couple of others. What really helped us at the beginning, I think this is helpful for, a helpful approach for most entrepreneurs is you sell the problem, not the solution. So we had actually one graphic of a lot of information, a big stack of information going to a little bit of information. And that graphic of the pain we were addressing pretty much stayed in every sales presentation for the life of the company. It got better. It started out with me, me creating the chart with Andy Byrne. And so it started with that and then the graphics got fancier, but the concept was the same. And so we started selling the pain. That got us a foot in. Then we differentiated in how we solved the problem. So we didn't, it wasn't basic keyword search. We created a new approach. We called it transparent search, which was essentially a very granular way of searching and slicing and dicing your messages and files to get down to just the ones that you needed. And then we built a methodology around it. And we went, and this is the second thing after selling the problem that I think is helpful approach generally in, in startups. We went and we sold the idea around this is the right way to do e-discovery. We didn't go and try and sell a product. We, our view was like, this is the right way to do it. You want to do this new thing. We called it an early case assessment rather than saying, you know, buy our software. And I think that concept came from one of our board members, Jim Getz, who made the point that every great company is a thought leader in its space. And so it pushed us to be thought leaders in, in, the, in the domain. And then once we had that, that differentiation, then it was just a question of scaling up around it and building out the product suite, building out the sales team, figuring out the channel, evolving the pricing model. And those things are hard, but they're solvable. That, that's how you yes. product market. Solving those a keep product market fit and yep. it doesn't also buy. If my memory serves me well, I think you went from zero to 100 mil in like five, six years that time frame, which is even in today's crazy mad market is just amazing. But you, you made that happen many, many years ago. But in our business, if the market is huge, you're going to see like a dozen startups that get funded by competing VC firms. And all of a sudden, everybody's trying to copy your product, hire your top talent. How did you keep on going up and up? What did you learn about keeping the top talent, building an amazing product so that customers had no reason to go to a competitor? Or were the markets different back then? Because today, in, in today's market, there's a multi-billion dollar market opportunity. You can bet there's going to be 20 different players the moment you hit that 20, 30, 50 mil ARR. 
Yeah, I think it's probably more extreme today. In those days, you had a handful of competitors. No yeah. one, it wasn't clear how big the markets were, but everyone thought the markets were smaller than today when everyone assumes, you know, everything's a huge market. In many ways, the markets today are bigger. In terms of the competition, we didn't worry hugely about competitors, is what I would say. There were a handful of companies that got up against us. We had a bunch of companies who would literally go to market saying, we will give you 80% of Clearwell at 20% of the price. And I think that is a universal phenomenon in any market. Whenever a company does well, it will have, I call them the ankle biters who come out and will we'll do that. But it's, that just puts the onus on you to deliver that much more value to your customer. Your product is commoditizing every day and you have to continually be making it better just to fight that commoditization trend that that shows itself through these, these vendors that are coming in with basic products at low prices. And that could be open source, it could be closed source, it could be a tool vendor, it could be a bootstrap business, it, all sorts of different options. So I think that's just a natural part of the competitive dynamics. We had one competitor in an adjacent market who was a real competitor because they had a product that really delighted customers. And I would have loved to have teamed up with them. I mean, I suggested it many times. Companies called Relativity. Today, that company's worth $4 billion. And it is, yeah. First off, I don't think you should worry too much about competitors. It's more companies, it's particularly white companies fail, more fail from suicide than homicide. So it's not your competitors that will kill you. It's your own inability to execute. And, and sometimes having a good competitor can actually help make a market. I think relatively we're a positive force in, in growing the overall market, as I hope we were as well. No, one thing that I heard in your response, which is very unique, is most of the companies do not think about partnering with their competitors. And we come from the cybersecurity space where there are very, very small vendors competing with each other. Obviously, you were thinking ahead of the time. How should the founders thinking about that when they see a really good competitor gaining ground over their own company? Well, I think whether or not your approach to competitors should depend on the market you're in. If you're in an established category and it's a question of, it's a zero-sum game and it's a question of either you win or the other guy wins, which happens in subcategories. I mean, you could argue, for example, secondary storage is a very established market and you have new rubric and cohesity and they're just going to go head to head. Then it's very hard. You, 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 basically, it's very hard to avoid head-on competition. And so it is going to be hand-to-hand combat in a sense in every account. But in many cases of startups, that's just not the case. The, what you're trying to do at a startup company is you're trying, to, you're trying to create a new category. You're trying to redraw the boundaries around different business activities. You're trying to change how people do things. You're, you're trying to spread new ideas. And in that situation, aligning on areas of mutual interest can be very beneficial because the number one enemy in that situation, if you speak to most people when they ask, you know, why do people not buy the product or why don't they use the product? It's, it's a non-decision. It's apathy. It's not, it's the status quo. It's a homegrown solution. It's just not having the kind of activation energy to get their user to change what they're doing. And that, that's a common enemy between all companies advocating for something new. And it's very hard to overcome, particularly if you're just a small company. And so if you can present a common set of ideas, if you can push a common set of ideas around 
why customers should change and what the right way of doing it is, it can benefit all companies. And so I think you're better off focusing on that than trying to tear down the other person where you risk freezing a customer decision because the challenge is how, you, how do you grow the category? Security industry can use some positive, uh, some game type thinkers. We are at each other all the time trying to destroy publicly or otherwise the other competitors, but not a lot of people share that perspective. So th- thank you for that. You know, you left Symantec, I think within a year post-acquisition, what can the big companies really learn to keep talented founders who they acquire and pay lots of money to just keep them around? In my own case, my future was discussed as part of the acquisition. I'm very good at Symantec and a, a real learning experience as part of Enrique Salem's executive team for a year. Enrique is now one of my partners in Capital Ventures. And so it was, a, it was definitely a meaningful experience for me. In general, on that question, though, I think it, it's just to align everyone's incentives. And when I look at successful acquisitions from Instagram to Meraki to many others where the team has remained in place, um, what's happening now in Palo Alto, playbook that, that's working well there, is that you keep the company as a separate business unit and you have it run separately. And I think 10 years ago, there wasn't as much of an appreciation for that. And as a result, Clearwell got carved up and put into functional units. And that is just much, much more difficult for the company that's being acquired. I think most people have chosen to go to that company because there's something special about it. And if you then separate those people and put them in different places, it causes many people to reevaluate why they're there and whether they should be there. But I think over the last years, that lesson has been learned by larger companies. And I see more and more for example, I was, just on, I was on the board of this company, Lightstep, that ServiceNow just acquired. And in, they have been very careful to keep the team together and allow it to continue operating. And I see that as being the new norm. Just last question on Clearwell before we talk about the venture side of the house. Like we discussed, you had 100 million in ARR. In today's world, it might be a decacorn, maybe, I don't know, 100 billion company, given the valuations nowadays. Does the thought about... I shouldn't have exited too early or that was too early. Does that even cross your mind? I know Clearwell is an ancient history now, but do you think about it anymore? Like maybe I should have gone IPO. I loved leading Clearwell. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And I love the team. And of course it crosses my mind as to should we have continued on. It's one of these really difficult decisions. I don't know. It, I, to me, how much a company would end up being worth is kind of a not an issue. It's much more around just either way you can most make a difference and whether we could have continued on in the way that we were. And so, yeah, no, I mean, the thought crosses my mind and it's one of those hard things. You don't get to live multiple lives. I don't regret anything that happened in the last 10 years. I'm very happy. I wish I could, could live multiple lives. I mean, there's so many neat things that we could be doing today. We're very fortunate. So after having two consecutive runs at the company building, you decided to go towards the other side. What made you decide to go into the venture business? The day that we sold Clearwell, Jim Getz, who was on my board from Sequoia, came over and suggested that I think about investing. That started the, the thought process. And for me, it was a couple of different things. Part of it was the challenge of being an investor because I hadn't done that before. I didn't know if I could do it. Part of it was the opportunity to help other entrepreneurs in the way that Mike Moritz and Jim Getz had helped me. Because in, the, in my two companies, they had really been instrumental as board members and 
helping me grow from being a, a really clueless founder into a hopefully slightly less clueless CEO. The opportunity to help other entrepreneurs in that way was something that I found really energizing. And then partly it's just a privilege to be able to work at Sequoia and a, with such an exceptional group of entrepreneurs and, and amazing partners. And so it was really a combination of those things that led me to, to join Sequoia. We'd love to get some insights um, on sort of, you must have seen both at Bain and, uh, and Sequoia, hundreds of companies, hundreds of founders, lots and lots of pitches. You know, in your opinion, having seen so many, what separates a good founder from a great one? You know, there's no set checklist, which is what makes this job hard. I'd say that when I came into venture, I had to change how I think. In an operating role, you make quick decisions. If you, you make a decision one way, if you get new information, you can change your mind. The, the emphasis is more on action. It, as an investor, you have to think more probabilistically. At about, because you're, you're really trying to assess what happens in the future and, and nobody knows that. So you're, you're always thinking about potential futures and it's, it's really difficult because what you're trying to do is easy. You meet companies and you just can say no a thousand times. And it'd be easy if I, you could just say yes a thousand times, but if you're going to say no 999 times and yes once and have that yes be the right yes. That is very difficult. I mean, that is, is really, really hard. And you have to kind of try and train your mind to try and do that. And part of that training is realize, is not being lazy, is not saying to yourself, if it meets the, if it gets to a million in ARR, you know, with such and such monthly growth, or if it's a founder with this background or whatever it is, that therefore it's worth investing it. And the reason is that doesn't work is because the best companies, the greatest companies at their earliest stages do not look like the best companies. They really don't. They don't look great. They look like outliers. They look, they're, they're oddballs. They're different. But there are lots of companies that are different. And you have to kind of pick your way through that to try and see more deeply what potentially could make this company. I've seen some of the VC firms actually do whole mathematical model decision-making trees to figure out what's the probability of a company making a successful exit. Is there some math as well? You more or less said that you cannot really uh, predict. For early stage investing, no. There's hmm. no mathematical model that I've ever seen work. That doesn't mean that data science can't be helpful in the venture business. Certainly it can be in terms of qualifying opportunities and focusing investors in the right areas. But no, there's no algorithm. There's no simple model. I think the firm that has gone furthest in this direction is Google Ventures. Yeah. Maybe that could so be then, your next startup. Whenever <laughs> you decide to uh, quit Bain and uh, <laughs> uh, then you'll have a Rolodex of clients anyways in the venture business. Uh, you can go pitch them this idea. What separates a good pitch from a great one? I think it's a pitch that doesn't feel like a pitch. And it's one that feels like a conversation with someone who has real depth in the domain, who clearly understands it well enough that they can explain it in a simple way at a high level and be able to, to go very deep to, with someone who has a unique insight that causes you to stop and pause and say, say to yourself, oh, you know, I hadn't thought about it that way before. And that, and so that person would have a, a learning mindset. 
so that as you point things out or if you challenge them, they don't get defensive, they engage and want to understand where your point of view is coming from and whether it has any merit. And so that those types of conversations by far the most compelling. You had mentioned that over the course of your journey, you have come across Canva, DoorDash, and Zoom. The meetings stood out for you, and then you ended up not investing. Any stories around that which are worth sharing and for our listeners to learn from? Well, thank you for bringing up painful memories. Uh, <laughs> in the venture business, the sins of omission are much greater than those of commission. To take Canva as an example, my son mentioned it to me the other day. And he said, he, and because he, we came up in conversation and he, he remembered it as, isn't that the product that you came home from work and I was in second grade and you made me use it for my school project because it was such a, you thought it was such a great product at the time and uh, that, that you felt like I should, I, I just had to use it. And I thought to myself, yeah, that's pretty much the only product I've met that I felt so strongly about. Yeah. And yet we best because the entrepreneur, Melody is wonderful entrepreneur based in Australia, and at the time we were focusing our investments in Silicon Valley. The general lessons to me, these companies are outliers. They're just different. There's not been a company like Canva before that has built such a broad user base and monetized in the way that it has coming from Australia with a team in the Philippines. There hadn't been a delivery company if you, like DoorDash and, and so this was a new generation of companies enabled by large pools of labor, casual labor, and mobile phones. There hadn't been, I mean, you could just, you could kind of run down the list of, of how each one of the great companies that we look at today, when you met them five or 10 years ago, they, they wouldn't look necessarily great. And that's why you have to just keep an open mind whenever you meet. Yeah, I, I can just imagine how maddening it must be to pass up on those opportunities, which seems very obvious, right? Before Instacart was successful, uh, WebVan was a spectacular failure. But it's so hard to predict the conversions of the market, the right product, the right founders. But like you said, I think you got to have enough at-bats. You know? Yeah, I mean, I should say that we, when I was in school, we invested in Instacart and DoorDash and Zoom. And so yeah. we did, we were able to, to partner with many of these companies. But it's the, that initial meeting that stands out as you know, whether you partner with them or not, and, and no one's perfect and you, you know, you miss a lot, like as with the case of Canva, but it, it's the, the meetings that just stand out in your mind. So last question before we move on to the tech trends and what's the next 10 year look like. If somebody who is right out of B school, you know, pretty young and uh, asks you, or if you've been in eight, nine years in venture business, can you give me your top three learnings in like next two minutes, what would those be? One is that a small team of truly great people can just achieve amazing things. And you often overestimate the capabilities of larger companies because they look so fearsome. But if you genuinely have a small team, a, a truly amazing small team of technologists, that is actually a very rare thing because it's very hard to get that concentration of talent and the second thing that has been become clear in the last 10 years, markets much well, every market is much bigger than you might think. And so what that says is you want to pick a market that calls to you and a problem that you, you care about and be prepared to commit five years, 10 years to that problem space. Because 
if it is a big enough area and, and you have a good enough team around you, you can find a, a compelling opportunities. I think those would be the, the main two things really for us to keep in mind. Just one more thing. Do you subscribe to Mark Andreessen's thesis that no ideas are bad ideas? It's just a matter of bad timing or in your everyday life, you do run into truly atrocious ideas. Well, that suggests that every idea is inevitable. I think there are ideas that just won't happen. And so, that, but, you know, as the, everything Mark says, there's a, a kernel at the core with real insight there. Yeah. Which is, you should always be willing to reevaluate ideas from the past because the world is changing all the time. And so just because something didn't work before doesn't mean it can't work in future. What's your take on current investment climate? Or it's, it seems like too much money chasing too few deals. Is this the new normal? I think one of the wonderful things about America and Silicon Valley is that it's one of the few places where talent has leverage over capital. If you go to a developing country, I you know, my family's from Pakistan. You go to Pakistan, it's capital that has the power. And it doesn't matter how talented you are as a person, it's going to be hard for you to build something because you just don't have access to that capital unless you're born with it. Whereas the, the great thing about America is that there's lots of capital and the scarce resource is talent. And because of that, talent can get a more than fair share of the, the rewards for what talent produces. And you've seen that in founders being able to uh, keep bigger and bigger shares of their companies and raise money, more and more money at higher and higher prices. So I think the fact that there's lots more capital today is, generally speaking, it's a great thing for entrepreneurs. I mean, there really has never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. And I, I see that when I talk to pe- people, because if, if I told an entrepreneur who was an entrepreneur in the, in the 2000s, say 2000 to 2010, they just have a totally different mindset to people who've been entrepreneurs 2010 to 2020 because for the, or 2021, because for the last 10 years, everything has been great. And in the 10 years before that, it was really hard and that just shapes your expected. So I think the fact there's global capital enabling more people to start companies and keep more of those companies overall for society is a great thing. Now, it's not as great a thing for investors because obviously you have to pay high valuations, you're, it's harder to make returns and all that kind of stuff. But really, who cares about investors? I mean, from a societal perspective, I think it's overall a good thing. The only, the only negative to it from an entrepreneur's perspective is it makes some things more difficult for the entrepreneur. And then I think that the significant downsides and the things that make life harder is that it is now harder to recruit talent it's harder for the talent to tell what's a good idea because before raising money was a screen. It was a milestone and it helped guide talent to the best opportunities. Today, anyone can raise money for pretty much anything. And as a result, it's harder for really great people to find their highest value opportunities because it's a noisier market. And then the other thing that's more difficult is I think it's a bit harder for founders to pick their venture capital partners. And I say that because the timelines are so compressed. Fundraising happens so quickly. And it's a long-term relationship. And it really is better for founders if they can spend more time with investors before deciding who they want to bring their, onto their board. Or- so 
you know, you presented the bull case, uh, but let me present the bear case. And I'd, I'd love to get your perspective on this and being on the other side, right? In the product building business who have where competition can be all consuming. The bear case here is that too much liquidity is going to not, is going to dissuade long-term thinkers that there may not be the next trillion dollar Amazon because you're not going to give them enough breathing room to actually really execute for four, five, 10 years because new and new investment comes. And you'd argue that like, well, it's good for consumers because, you know, prices will drop, blah, 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 innovation will spread. But the bear case is like to truly find something amazing that is built to last. You do need that breathing room. And like I said, I mean, being on the other side, thinking about competition can be all consuming. Like, like I have to spend 30% of my time on competition versus customers and building great products. Five years ago, raising $100 million was a big number. It was an unusual thing. Companies didn't generally do it. They'd have to go public and then deal with earnings in the public market. Today, you know, you can you just read TechCrunch. Every day there are people raising uh, $100 million, more unicorns in the first seven months of the year than in all of last year. Uh, I think it's 193 in the first seven months of the year compared to 16 in 2015, 2012, 2013, whatever it was. And so I look at that and say that entrepreneurs have more breathing room. They have more capital. If you have $100 million on your balance sheet, you can run a lot more experiments and it, not all of them need to work. So I think it's more forgiving today for entrepreneurs than before. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And based on your previous comment, uh, the way I say it, it's founder's market versus investor's market. And when I'm trying to wire, it's employee's market rather than employer's market. What that also helps with, I think in the bull case, is that the second round founders, they start getting more and more opportunity. This is theory. Are you seeing any changes in the industry where more women founders are running companies? I'm personally seeing more women founders, but there are still not enough women founders. We also need more people of color and more entrepreneurs from underrepresented communities. And I don't see enough of them either. So I think we have a long way to go on that. But your general point is right, that if you open up access and if we fund more companies collectively and trying more things, then that does open the door to more groups, but we should also be consciously kind of do that. We shouldn't just rely on that overall trend. I think that there's clearly a massive under-tapped talent pool there that we need to figure out how to give access to and how to create a, a level playing field. Thank you. And I'm I'm part of certain forums and this is what we talk about, right? I think it's it's the risk-taking and uh, this is the right time to actually start doing something like this. I'll move to the industry trends now. Or if you invest in a multitude of verticals, but which tech trends are you most bullish on nowadays? I see the, the couple of trends that I invest actively that I'm very bullish on. One would be the impact of AI and ML and new levels of automation across the economy. Second would be every application being rebuilt around collaboration. So the sharing is first class citizen. One of our companies, Felt, which is a collaborative mapping application announced last week as an example. And then a third area, which is a firm where we do a lot as a firm, although I don't personally focus on it, decentralized trust models and, and decentralized finance. So generally, generally called crypto, where I think there's a lot of potential. 
Yeah, no, all all tremendous area that I'm bullish on as well. I'm not sure if this is an area of passion as well, but it is fresh of the press. So I have to ask you, but obviously the I'd love to get your take on global warming. There was a report on IPCC, uh, which basically effectively said that global rise in temperature of about one to two degrees Celsius is inevitable. What are some of the investments you're seeing in this area? I mean, obviously, Saka is popular uh, with his uh, lower carbon capital fund. But what are other big innovations that are happening in our business, in the in the venture business that common people don't know about to address this existential crisis? Yeah, I read the report and it makes the depressing reading, really. It feels like just a matter of time before addressing climate issues goes from being the least important thing to the most important thing. And it feels like we're on that, that path. And it's certainly come up the agenda the last year. It's not happening fast enough. We need to be doing more, but at least there's more awareness of it. It also feels like to solve the problem, it's, it can't just be government. It'll need to be private industry. Certainly in the US, it'll need to be private industry. I think the pandemic offers some parallels there. If you're in China, where you have a certain kind of government, then government action can have a big impact in managing a pandemic with lockdowns and what have you. If you're in the US, then you're really relying on innovation, vaccines to get you out of trouble. And I, I think it'll be a similar or an analogous situation with environmental issues where we really need innovation and a commitment from business as well as government to improve our situation. And, and in particular, I think a focus on carbon removal. If there's minimizing the environmental footprint and there's lots we could be doing there. Every time I see an Amazon box arrive at our house, I kind of ask myself, why we need so much cardboard and yeah. is there a terrible way to get our packages? I, I don't think reducing consumption or buying offset credits are going to be enough. We need to significantly remove carbon from the atmosphere. And I think that that will drive a whole cycle of, of innovation. Awesome. Well, that brings us to the final segment, Rapid Fire. I've got some quick yes or no quick questions for you, Arif. So if you're ready, uh, I'll start uh, hitting those your way. Sure. All right. First question, what's the next trillion dollar industry that either doesn't exist or is still in infancy? Decentralized finance and carbon removal. Love it. Let's say you've, you've raised 100 billion in venture funds. Uh, your time horizon is 10 years, whatever, long time horizon. Uh, you got to return the LPs above market returns. And you can pick three entrepreneurs from past or present to give all of that money. Who are you picking? Yeah, I have kind of mixed feelings about it because the beauty of technology is that you don't need $100 billion. The small group of people with a small amount of capital can make a big difference. But of the entrepreneurs that I've worked with, the ones that come to mind would be Tony Shu at DoorDash, mm. who is probably the last mile network, starting with food. Todd McKinnon at Okta, who is creating an identity layer that is much broader than just simple SSO, single sign-on. Andy Byrne at Clary, that is creating a new, a whole movement around revenue operations. David Velez at Ubank, which is a, a neobank in Brazil that's completely changing financial services down there. And Helmi at Mirali at Gardent, who creating an early stage detection test for cancer. Awesome. 
This is a, more, a bit of a morbid question, but must be asked. Um, does humanity survive next 200 years? Yeah, I mean, every species has gone extinct. I don't know if you read Wait But Why, which is a great yes. book. Tim Urban's now it's humanity is kind of on a slippery balance beam. And, you know, we're trying to walk along the slippery beam and at some point we slip off. I think it's inevitable at some point humanity goes extinct because every species has. Um, but I'm optimistic it won't be in the next hundred years. I remain optimistic as well, at least for 200 years. I don't know about thousand years. We've solved a lot of problems. We solved, uh, for God's sake, a pandemic that we thought we'll have vaccine in 10 years and we produce one in one year. So yep. I think we can get there. Um, what's the one thing you don't see founders do today in their pitch deck that they should or their pitch in general? I think it's highlight the non-obvious insight that is the premise to their business. How, how are they going against conventional wisdom? Love it. And the last question, which book has had the biggest impact in your life? Global Eight by Vikram Sen, hmm. which hmm. is a set of poems written in iambic pentameters about someone in the Bay Area and works in the tech industry. I'm going to add it to my reading list. Arif, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. We really enjoyed this conversation. One hour is clearly not enough. Uh, hopefully, we'll have you back. But thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, no, thank you both. It's thank really you. been a great pleasure to chat with you.